Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 46 and it's June the 10th, 1980, and Commandant Dipinar's Combat Group 61, that huge convoy of 151 vehicles, had drawn up to the east of the main target of Operation Skeptic. There was a group of more than a dozen facilities, codenamed Smokeshell. Last episode, we heard how Dipinar had broken up his assault force into six combined armed combat teams for the coming attack. Team 1, 2 and 3 were to launch directly from the east to the west, while teams 4 and 5 were deployed as stopper groups on the western side. So teams 1 and 3 moved in first just after 1300 hours and a short artillery bombardment, and they found that the defenders in the north had disappeared. They came to the erroneous conclusion that Swapo had fled instead of wanting to fight. In a moment, team 2 were going to find the assault a different kettle of fish entirely, or perhaps a can of worms is the better analogy. Team 1 wandered off track and ended up north of their target, 800 metres north to be exact, whereas Team 3 were right on their selected facility, but both were empty of planned troops who had withdrawn so quickly that they left behind several anti-aircraft guns. This further reinforced the perception that Swapo had run away. Team 1 eventually located their target, which, as I said, was deserted, and made sure the trenches and bunkers to the north were empty, then regrouped. Some of the Swapo fighters were spotted and a firefight broke out, six Swapper were killed. Meanwhile, Team 2, which was led by Captain Louis Haramsa, comprised of B Company of Mechanized Infantry, supported by Rattle 90s and Mortars, were heading directly towards the main southern end of this network of bases at Smokeshell. We'll hear a lot more about Captain Haramsa in coming episodes. Unfortunately, he was to join his father in the pantheon of those who were to give their lives fighting for the country. Right now, he led Team 2 as they approached the southern smokeshell complex. At first, they managed to move fairly swiftly through the bush. That was before they ran into a well-set-up Swapo defensive position that intelligence seemed to have missed. Captain Haramsa followed the training discipline for mechanized infantry and divided his force. One was a fire support group of Rattle 90s, a mortar platoon, and a mechanized infantry platoon from B Company, and the second was an assault group of two mechanized infantry platoons. The support group would lay down fire and move to outflank Swapo while the infantry platoons would storm the enemy in their dug-in positions. Captain Haramsa radioed for artillery support, but before they could bind their range, the fire support group walked straight into Swapo anti-aircraft gun positions that were camouflaged in the bush and which proceeded to lay down a withering fire. Neither the mortar platoon nor the rifle 90s were in a position to help the infantry and things turned into a fight for survival for the South Africans. The Rattle 90s were firing the main guns straight ahead into the bush in close quarter combat at targets that were sometimes closer than 30 metres away, while the drivers manoeuvred their large vehicles around, driving over Swapo defenders. The mortar section simply dropped their pipes and opened fire as infantry. While all of this was going on, the assault group moved forward unaware of the carnage taking place a short distance away. Swapo soldiers were running about, adding to the scene of chaos and convincing the group that the enemy was indeed running away. The mechanized assault group rushed forward straight into an opening or a shona where the trees and bush didn't grow, and it was here that all hell really broke loose. At least three Swapo 14.5mm anti-aircraft guns opened up, as well as an extremely powerful and feared 23mm, which sprayed the rattles with deadly fire. Several were hit in quick succession, and Corporal Gareth Rutherford in one is quoted by Leopold Skoltz. Then it happened, not tack, tack, tack anymore, but doof, 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 about three per second, heavy automatic fire. They saw the huge anti-aircraft guns, four barrels, eight feet high, 
the five-man crew at point-blank range, cutting through the rattles like butter. Their CDF troops were trapped and began to be picked off by these heavy weapons. Rifleman Marco Coforio said afterwards that Our rattle was hit. Suddenly everything went into almost slow motion. Stephen Cronier turned in his seat and opened the hydraulic doors for us to get out. That's when I saw he had been hit in the chest. Traces were bouncing inside the rattle, and they all realized they were facing heavy caliber guns. Their rounds passed straight through the armored vehicle's skin. At least two men from the rattle were already dead as Rifleman Coforio tried to return fire. Another trooper, Van der was yelling at Coforio to get down, and then he realized that everyone else in his rifle had remained inside because they were all dead. Lieutenant Paul Lowe, who commanded two platoon, saw many of his men hit, and later the casualty figure would be revealed. Seventeen South Africans died on this day, the largest loss in the SADF's history in a single day's combat since 1945. The survivors were on foot now and began fighting back, including rifleman Andrew McLean, who picked up a Bren machine gun and shot down a Swapo crew of one of the 23mm AA guns. The big problem for Captain Haramsarat now was that neither his assault group nor his support group could work in tandem. They were split up. Their training doctrine called for mutual action, but each was now fighting directly for its own survival. Haramsa was told to report to Dipinar behind the action, leaving his men to fight on. Once Dipinar heard about Team 2's predicament, he acted fast, ordering the reserve Team 6 under Major Jab Swat to head into battle in an attempt at rescuing the situation. Around 50 men and more than half a dozen rattles and other armoured vehicles were pinned down and the casualty rate was climbing. Team 1, meanwhile, under Paul Fouchier, which had completed that sweep in the north, were then ordered southwards at 1630 to reinforce Team 2. The airlines of Team 3 under Jake Jacobs moved in behind to form a new reserve. By the time Team 6 approached the rattle 90s that had been hit by the anti-aircraft guns, it looked like an abattoir. The 23mm cannon armour-piercing rounds had made short work of these rattles, slicing through everything and chopping up the occupants inside. It was not a pretty sight. One of the drivers had been plastered against the front window, another had his arm blown off and medics were trying to stem the bleeding. Major Swat managed to collect the bodies of some of the South African dead and loaded these on his Irland and Rattle armoured cars. But as he moved back, they ran into another contact. The armoured vehicles didn't stop though. They managed to fire their way out of trouble and despite two losing their way, they made it to relative safety. One of the lost vehicles was located shortly afterwards, but the second... A rattle was forced to spend that night out in the bush, the fearful crew expecting a Swapo attack at any second. As Major Paul Fouchier of Team 1 withdrew, he ran into yet another ambush. Swapo was fighting for all it's worth, and the SADF troops were completely surprised by the aggressive defence. All the gung-ho boasting of the last few days dried up as Dipinar began to count the cost. But, like all good soldiers, he did not panic. He was thinking clearly. He ordered Jakob's Elance of Team 3 forward his last throw of the dice, his reinforcements. Meanwhile, Fouchier managed to pull back around 200 metres, disengaging from the ambush, then outflanked his enemy on the left, while Jakob's armoured cars provided heavy support with their 90mm guns. Finally, the South Africans were gaining the upper hand. It was almost a textbook manoeuvre aided at that very moment by Impala 2 ground support aircraft. Their missile strikes eviscerated the Swapo fighters in the ambush zone. Two prisoners were then seized, and with their blood up, some of the SADF infantry wanted to shoot them in cold blood. But Constant Fulun, who'd survived the attacks, and Johan Dippenau were very clear about what would happen to anyone who did this. Shoot at or touch those people and you'll be court-martialed, Fulun told.
told the junior NCOs who wanted revenge. Once a prisoner is taken, he or she turns into an important asset. You're not fighting like an animal, a monster. A soldier is not a thoughtless beast. You're fighting for political aims, and survivors were sources of information. Once they are defeated, many would end up turning into soldiers fighting for the South Africans. The senior officers wanted information. Two more dead men was just a momentary emotion, ultimately unsatisfying and tactically clueless. For those who have not experienced these things, this sounds strange, but you must realize that those of us who fought are not motivated by hate. That is a base emotion for the weak. That gets you into lots of trouble if you're paid to fight. It's intellectually bereft. Excuse me, signing off at this point. But we fight to win, not just to kill. Without resorting to too much information, let's just say I have excellent knowledge of how useful a defeated enemy can be when he or she becomes your ally. In this case, the two POWs who were saved from cold-blooded murder were going to provide the SADF with information about other targets nearby and then warn the South Africans of traps. So this final assault by Jakobs and the Impalas broke Swampo's back. And at 1700 hours 30, comms intercepted a Swampo radio message which said, We tried but lost conduct of controlling the troops, went the Swampo message. We are evacuating. However, as with all things in these sorts of battles, Swampo had not left the area completely. When the SADF began to move southwards of Smokeshell to prepare for the night, they ran into a classic L-shaped ambush. Unfortunately for Swampo, the SADF was prepared partly because the POWs had warned about these kinds of ambush. Maximum firepower was brought to bear on the Swapo position. Within 20 minutes it was over and this time the fighting ended for the night. The SADF survivors of this violent day barely slept, fingers on their triggers, because most expected an imminent counter-attack that night. It never came. The next morning, the 11th of June, the sun rose over a smoking scene of chaos, utter distraction. Bodies lay scattered, vehicles were burning or smoking. Bits of the flotsam and jetsam of battle were strewn across a broad area of the bush. The men of Battle Group 6-1 were exhausted, but they weren't done. Fortunately, the two companies of paratroopers now arrived. These were the men who were supposed to have been chopped in from Lemba, but fuel, remember, was not available for the Pumas, and so they made the long trip by lorry. They mopped up the area. By now, 61 mech vehicles were also beginning to run out of fuel and ammunition. Some of the airlines were already being towed. Combat Group 1-0 under Chris Serfontaine also arrived during the morning and began searching for intelligence and survivors. This would take a few days. Something now also happened that the army leadership had been dreading, and it involved General Constant Fulun. Commandant Dipana thought it an ideal moment to move his headquarters, but as his command rattle shifted position, it detonated a double tank mine throwing the vehicle into the air. Inside the rattle was General Constant Fulun. Somehow he survived, but back at operations headquarters in Yenhana across the cut line, SWA Commander Heldenhuis had been told of the incident but not of the general's condition. After some time it emerged that Fulun was shaken but otherwise fine, he dodged a bullet, so to speak, but he still ignored suggestions that as the top-ranking general in charge he shouldn't really be exposing himself to imminent danger. Within two days and by early afternoon of the 13th of June, Smokeshell was free of Swapo and the SEDF were now methodically searching through the large base complex. A total of 267 planned fighters had died and their bodies were buried, while 10 anti-aircraft guns and a large pile of ammunition and other material were seized. 17 South Africans had died, two dozen or more were wounded. 
The next part of the operation was supposed to be an immediate attack on Yonde, but it was decided to move 61 Mech back to Mulemba, further south, then conduct local operations there instead. Throughout the next few days, there were continuous skirmishes. For example, Combat Group 1-0 ran into an enemy rearguard north of Zangongo. Impalas were overhead and their strafing, along with accurate mortar fire, led to another swap of retreat. Documents were found, along with 76mm guns and other war material, which was dragged back to Southwest Africa. By now, Lieutenant General Heldnes was leading a force clearing the territory at the tail end of Operation Skeptic. They were supposed to join up with the Group 1-0 and then head back to the Cutland, but then something both the South Africans and the Angolans had not expected took place. Group 1-0's mechanized infantry moved through the village of Mongwa on the way to rendezvous with Heldnes, and its commander Chris Serpentine was not aware that a significant Angolan FAPLA mechanized force was concentrated in that village. The Angolans and the South Africans were as surprised as each other as the SADF advanced party in Buffels bumped into the FAPLA units. The Angolans responded by charging three Russian BTR 152 armored personnel carriers straight at the South Africans, but they were knocked out in swift succession. Serpentine was on the radio immediately to the SA Air Force and luckily mirages were close by offering air-to-ground support. And during the period of Skeptic, Akai Smokeshell and the mopping up ops afterwards, an Impala light jet bomber had been shot down along with an Alouette 3 chopper. The cost was going up. On the 20th of June, Lieutenant Neil Thomas was flying a close support mission over Angola when his Impala was hit by a 23mm anti-aircraft shell. The shrapnel hit the lower nose and debris passed through the engine's compressor. He lost power and the plane lost altitude rapidly before hitting the treetops just as Thomas ejected. Luckily, he was picked up swiftly by search and rescue and flown to a helicopter support area inside Angola near the town of Ivali. But the Alouette's engine air filter had picked up dirt during the landing and was forced to conduct an emergency landing itself on the way. The crew managed to clear the air filter and got away in time just ahead of Fapla, which was searching for the Impala pilot. Then on the 23rd of June, an Alouette 3 crewed by Captain Tinus van Rensburg and Sergeant Gouselius was hit by anti-aircraft fire near Zangongo. The Alouette was brought down and the two-man crew managed to escape the burning wreckage but then Saliers was hit by AK ground fire and killed. Somehow, von Rensburg managed to escape and reach safety on foot. He was eventually found by South African ground forces near Kuomato, suffering from compression fractures of his vertebra, superficial wounds and dehydration. So it's time to conduct the inevitable debriefing of this operation. Swalpo had lost about 75% of its immediate transport capacity due to the vehicles being blown up or burned. Documents were found revealing some of Swapo's future plans. Their morale had been further dented, but these were all short-term gains for the South Africans. Following the operation, Top Brass debriefed what had Operation Skeptic achieved. Commandant Dipinar was the most vocal about one weakness in particular, the relatively poor intelligence reports. There was some uncertainty about the nature of the target. It was far more sprawling and spread out than they'd been led to believe. They knew there were around 13 complexes, but they had no idea how many planned fighters were inside each. The basic premise of tactical fighting is having a clear idea about the composition of your enemy. The SADF didn't. They also didn't know how well the enemy had dug in, thinking Swapo would be in shallow foxholes, when in fact they were defending positions that included large bunkers and a system of trenches. That is what caused Team 2's biggest problem as they were pulverized by the anti-aircraft weapons. Intelligence had been inaccurate. 
Furthermore, when air attacks took place, they merely forewarned SWAPO of the ground attack. These were not coordinated properly, whatever both the SEDF and SAF Force have said since. By bombing the targets hours before the ground forces arrived, it gave the defenders time to prepare instead of being part of a one-two punch. Instead, the air raids gave SWAPO time to count to ten, and by the time the ground forces arrived, they were back on their feet and well ready. Captain Louis Haramsa had a few words to say about this. So too, Jakobs Jacobs. Perhaps the most important thing to state was how the SEDF had underestimated SWAPO. They thought planned fighters would drop their weapons and run, but in places, as Team 2 found out, plan fought back. When Teams 1 and 3 began sweeping Smokeshell, Swapo had indeed withdrawn from the north, but only to concentrate their actions in the south, fighting courageously in some cases to the last man. The 14.5mm and 23mm crews did not run. They remained at their stations aiming deadly fire into the SADF rifles until they were all killed. Other challenges had surfaced, such as the Elansan rifles and infantry becoming lost in the thick bush, almost like being surrounded by a sea of green, and the land is as flat as a pancake. They needed to improve navigation, but remember this was still before GPS. Turning to equipment, it was also apparent that the 7.62mm R1 rifle, a version of the Belgian FN, was not suitable for mechanized operations. It was brilliant. I carried one around for two years. Its stopping power is legendary, and it's very accurate over short, medium, and long range. But it's too big to wield inside a rattle or on the back of a buffle, and most of the fighting was not long range. It was taking place at extreme short range in dense bush. A lighter automatic weapon with a higher rate of fire was needed. It was time to introduce the 5.56mm R4, an adaption of the Israeli Galil, which featured a folding stock and was introduced shortly after Smokeshell in 1980 and is still being used as the standard SA Defence Force automatic rifle today. Turning to vehicles, the Elant was not suited to this kind of deep insertion. It's petrol-powered, and its range was considerably less than the rifle, which burns diesel, 300 kilometers versus 800 kilometers. Sometimes the embarrassed Elant commander would end up being towed by the rifles in operations where fuel supply logistics were challenges, Big Brother towing the noddy car. SADF artillery was still World War II vintage. The Megidus-Deutz gun tractors broke down. They overheated. Plans were well underway, though, to fix all these problems with the remarkable G5 on the way. Finally, we must assess the overall strategy. As the SADF top brass swanned about at media conferences, boasting that Skeptic was a great success, behind these death stats was a contradiction. This was not a conventional war, despite all these figures, these machines this war material, these motorized troops. This was a non-conventional war against insurgents, a guerrilla war. It was ultimately dirty. It was on foot, underground like Vietnam. Soldiers versus soldier, grunt versus grunt. Agreed, Swapo's casualty rate was high, but in the long run, they were not really weakened. Like water flowing downhill, Swapo would return from the north to their shattered bases in the south. The SADF could not hold them because their political leadership was playing two games, trying to keep Western nations on their side while keeping Swapo away. It was, unfortunately, one or the other, and therefore the strategy was wrong if the idea was to win a war. The political leadership in Pretoria failed to fully comprehend that tens of thousands of black youths were willing to fight for their freedom and die for Swapo, so a few thousand casualties a year was chicken feed 
in this broad equation. Moscow was still pumping arms and advisors into Angola and training Swapo. Worse, within a year, the SA Air Force, which had been operating without serious airborne opposition, was to begin facing a far more organized opponent. Then what of the main strategy to push Swapo away from southern Angola and buffer of Umberland? That failed too. July saw 65 planned fighters killed in an escalation. 3-2 battalions suffered a serious incident in the same month near Kuamato, where the Impala had been downed. A platoon from 3-2 were following up an earlier contact near the town when they discovered a bunker. After three M26 grenades that were lobbed in failed to destroy the structure, the platoon commander decided a shrapnel mine on the roof would do the job. So Corporal Groble entered the bunker to plant the mine while Corporal Kutsia stood at the door. But the bunker was booby-trapped, and the explosion killed both Grobler and Kutsia. Second Lieutenant Slubber and Smith, as well as Corporals Boerter, Brink and Flock, were all hit by shrapnel in their upper and lower legs. They were Kazavacked, but July had been a bad month. In August, 102 planned fighters were shot in numerous contacts. That rose to 170 in September. That was hardly a drop-off in Swapo action after Smokeshell. In fact, it was the exact opposite. By the end of 1980, 1,175 ambushes, contacts, detonating mines, acts of intimidation and sabotage had taken place inside Southwest Africa, the most recorded in the territory ever. More than 1,100 planned fighters had been killed, and yet a major strategic question needed answering. What percentage of Swapo's total force was that casualty figure? 20? 50? Intelligence reports were proving remarkably inaccurate. Without clarity about these numbers, continuously throwing mechanized forces into action for a few hundred deaths doesn't appear to be a particularly clever strategy. Yes, it does the morale of the commanding officers a lot of good, and the National Party doting voters feel much better, as Vladimir Putin is going to find out in his planned assaults on the Baltic states and Ukraine, trying to control the nationalist propaganda message by committing an external war tends to backfire when those you're attacking are nationalists themselves. That's because the people you invade tend to circle back when you're not looking and slit your throat because they have time. They are from the land and they are going nowhere. Military strategy tells us it's the invader who must always make a decision and that, implica- and by, and that by implication has a deadline. Swapo had nowhere to go but a Namibian future. The SADF did not belong there and both sides knew it. So the military strategy was just about pushing an inevitable deadline back. But buying time with blood is not a successful strategy unless you have that time on your side. And for the apartheid government, it was starting to run out. So right now, it's time to halt and dig in for the night. Thanks to those sending me advice and comments. Some former special forces and others fighting in armies worldwide. Some retired. Thanks again to Nick, by the way, of wardogactual.uk. I'm wearing your t-shirt you sent me right now. Please head over to my website, abwarpodcast.com. There's a link to send emails if you want to chat, or you can direct message me on Twitter, at Des Until next, that's bait.